My name is Dean. I'm the lead pastor here. If today is day number one for you, we are excited that you're here. If you've been around for a while, we're just as excited that you're with us. We um, are in the middle of a series you have joined us called uh, Labels, uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke. And so what we've been doing as a church family is that we've been reading devotionally through the Gospel of Luke together six days uh, a week. We're just a little bit past halfway. Now, I want us to do something since we're kind of journeying through that together here in just a second. I'm going to ask you, not right now, but here in just a second, I'm going to ask you if you have read at least one chapter in the Gospel of Luke in this process with us as we're reading together, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? Now, I know some of you are very active non-participants. I know you are anti-hand raisers. I get it. I get it. But I'm doing this on purpose. It's for kind of a specific moment. I want us to, well, I'll explain it in just a minute. So I'm going to count to three. And if you've read at least one chapter of the Gospel of Luke with us in this process, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So if you love Jesus and your mom and puppies, you'll raise your hand when I say so, all right? If you read at least one chapter in the Gospel of Luke, just raise your hand and hold them up. Hold them up high for a second, all right? Hold them up. I just want you to look around the room, right? Look at the increase, the feel of Bible engagement, right? Look, just hold them up, keep them up. Jesus changed the world with 120 men and women after the resurrection. What could God do with our church, right? Here locally, you can put your hands down. There was a, there was a guy named Dwight Moody who's famous in American evangelical history back in the early 1900s. And when he was a young man, he laid out one night underneath, looked up at the stars, saw the vast array of what God had provided. And he said, God, what could you do with one man? What could you do with one man? whose life was fully surrendered to you. What could God do with our church as we continue in this process? I hope that you'll join us. You can see everything that you need to see, find everything you need to find um, in social media, uh, to jump in, to continue to read uh, the Gospel of Luke together uh, devotionally. You can find posts there under the hashtag LP Bible. But man, I'm, I'm just so thrilled with the stories that I'm hearing about what God's doing in the lives um, of our church as we, as we read the Gospel and engage God's Word together. Now, the reason the series is called Labels is because Luke is unique among the gospel writers. Luke, um, he writes the gospel to people who are on the fringes, people who feel left out, isolated, far from God, like we all do um, at times. And so we want to push back against those labels. That's the reason the big idea for this series is that the gospel calls us to a life that is above labels, right? That's important because the labels that other people attach to us, the categories that other people put us into, or the categories that we put ourselves in sometimes, the labels that we attach to our own hearts, those labels can become your limits, right? And instead of allowing the labels to become your limits, you wanna push back against those. And so today, we're gonna push back against a very specific label, and the label is failure. I know a lot of people who call themselves um, followers of Christ and they say things to themselves like, I'm never going to be like those other Christians. I'm never going to be one of those people who's strong enough to, to fight temptation. I'm never going to be one of those people who does the right thing for the right reasons when nobody else is looking. I'll never be strong enough. I'll never be whatever you have to be enough. Well, in Luke chapter 4, that's where we are today, Jesus teaches us how to become good temptation fighters. In chapter 4, right from the beginning of the chapter, Jesus goes out into the wilderness 
and he fasts for 40 days. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline whereby you remove something from your life and you replace it with more time and intense focus on your relationship with God. A lot of times when you read about fasting in Scripture, it was fasting from, from food. In our modern world, it's, sometimes it's a good thing that's become a God thing, right, in your life. Something that maybe has got too much emphasis, too much attention, so maybe you're going to fast from media. Maybe you're going to fast from social media. Maybe you're, you're going to fast from something so you can bring an increased time, a season of attention to your relationship with God. Jesus does that for 40 days, and after 40 days, God's enemy, Satan, comes to Jesus to tempt him. And he faces three different temptations there in the wilderness, um, there in the desert. The first one is that um, God's enemy comes at Jesus and he tempts him to turn stones into bread. And we'll read through Jesus' responses. The first one comes in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, the second half. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Right? So three areas of temptation Jesus is going to face, appetites, ambition, and approval. Those are the three things that the enemy is going to come out with. Same again, appetites, ambition, and approval. Those three, three areas. So when he comes at him with appetites, turn these stones into bread, Jesus says, wait, 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 it is written. So he fends off temptation number one. Temptation number two comes at him in the area, um, in the area of ambition. He says, enemy says, listen, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, all you have to do. Is bowed on to me. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 8, the second half. Jesus says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, so far, you've got two temptations. Both times, Jesus quotes scripture. It's just another reason this whole thing we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. We need scripture ready in moments of temptation, in moments of test, in moments of difficulty. We need our hearts filled with God's word. It's part of that battle, and we see Jesus. Fighting in here. The third one comes in the area of approval. The enemy says to Jesus, What if you would just throw yourself off the temple? The angels will bear you up. The enemy actually quotes scripture at Jesus. He said, That's what's written, right? The enemy will bear you up so you, don't, you won't dash your foot against a stone, and then everyone will know you're the Messiah. And Jesus responds in verse 12 It is said, You shall not put, um, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Stray days of temptation what I'm going to call them, right? Appetites, ambition, and approval. Every time Jesus comes back at these tests, he says, it's written, it's written, it's written. God's word, God's word, God's word. So let me say three things to you briefly um, about dealing with temptation. Number one, you need to be aware. I need to be aware of the enemy, but don't be consumed with the enemy. I know some people, um, maybe who are Christians, who look for the devil around every corner. And I believe, I believe the Bible teaches, I believe it's a reality. You have to have an explanation, by the way, for evil in the world, right? I believe there's active, intelligent evil at work in the world. I think the Bible clearly says that, teaches that. If you don't believe that, then you have to come up with another explanation, right? For what was the source of original evil and its activity um, in the world. So be aware, be alert, all of those things, but don't look at the enemy. Like we talked about last week, like look at Christ, right? Focus on Christ, focus on Jesus, don't focus on the enemy. Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The, the, the enemy is a defeated foe, right? He has limited power, limited authority, so keep your focus on Christ. Be aware, be alert, all those things. And at the same time, keep your focus where it needs to be because the second idea the, the first one is on the external focus. 
But the second idea is that you need to be wise to your own soul and not dependent on it. So the first one, be wise to the enemy, right? But don't be consumed by it. The second one, be wise to your own soul. When we face temptation and tests, it's not just that we face it externally, but we also face it internally, right? We're born into this world separated from God by sin. None of us is perfect. All of us have stepped outside of the boundaries of what God says is best. And that's because we've got this, this built-in, inherent bent towards selfishness and sin when we're born into the world. So we deal with temptation externally, right? We understand that. But we also deal with it internally. So you've got to understand your own soul. So whatever it is that is uh, a gre the greatest area of temptation for you, be wise to that. Maybe it's in the area of your appetites. Maybe it's uh, in the area of lust and sexual sin. I, I mentioned a couple of months ago, uh, there's a fantastic national organization uh, called the Samson Society right now that is helping uh, men all over the country. Uh, we have a group of men here at our church who are part of that, who are uh, keeping one another uh, accountable, focused on Christ. Find something like that that can be helpful. There are organizations out there for women if you're struggling in that same area. Maybe for you it's not that. Maybe it's in the area of appetites. Maybe it's chemical dependency or something like that. Be wise to your own soul. Set strategy against it. Maybe it's in the area of ambition. Maybe for you, it's not so much about your appetites, but your consistent fall is in regards um, to money. And man, you're going to hoard it. You're going to get it. You're not going to be generous with it. You're going to hold on to it. And your life is all about success and accumulation in the area of ambition. Or maybe it's in the third area. Maybe it's in the area of approval. Maybe you live for the, the attaboys and the attagirls, the pats on the back, the promotions, everyone kind of giving you recognition and praise. You need to understand your own soul, you need to memorize scripture accordingly, and you need to stand and you need to push back against those temptations. Which leads me to the third thing about temptation. The best way to fight temptation is to have a strong, healthy relationship with Jesus. That's the best fight against temptation, right? You know, you talk about dating relationships or you talk about marriages. You know, you have some people ask, like, how do I affair proof my marriage? Or how do I make sure I don't, the, the best way to, the best thing you can do in marriage is have a strong marriage, right? Instead of focusing on not doing the negative, you, you, you focus on the positive, right? Sometimes the best way to fight against something is to better understand what it is that you're fighting for. So whatever you need to do, whatever you have to do to have a strong love for Jesus, man, invest in that. Find ways to do that. Um, for me, um, I'm, I'm, I need to change my pace. I need to not do the same thing um, all the time to help me to actively uh, engage in loving Jesus. So reading scripture like we're doing in Luke, absolutely praying, absolutely. And like a couple of weeks ago, um, I've got to go rake grass, right, in my yard. I hate raking grass, but it's the springtime in Ohio, and you, gotta, you can only mow certain days, so my grass is thick. So I'm out there raking grass, but I put my uh, iPhone in my back pocket, put my AirPods in, and it is me and this band that I'm loving uh, right now called Maverick City. 
and we're out there raking grass, right, together, and it's a beautiful thing, right? And the more grass I rake and the more I sing about how God is sufficient for the day, there's this song, man, all of a sudden I'm finding myself blessed. I'm getting a little teary-eyed out there as I'm raking grass. She's singing, this uh, the female vocalist is singing about the favor of God. I realize I've got the favor of God. So all of a sudden I'm standing out in my yard, rake up in the air, hands up in the air. People driving by like, what is that guy? Is he directing a plane? What is he doing out there? And you know, I'm just, I was loving Jesus, right? I mean, there's good moments. They're better, they're not good moments. Those are God moments. I'm standing out there in my yard with this rake in my hands and I'm like, God, this is a, this is be a great moment right now to just, you just send Elijah's chariot down and I'll jump in, man, I'm ready. This is, this is what eternity's like, I'm ready, right? And the best temptation fighter in your life is a strong, healthy love relationship with Jesus. If I could gift you anything, that's what I would gift you. That's what will keep you in the fight. Perfect? Absolutely not. Mistakes? Sure. Challenges? Yep. All of that is true. And that's the foundation, right? That's what we're looking for. Now, we could spend all of our time talking about um, temptation, how to fight temptation, but I want to move on because Jesus actually comes off in the end of chapter 4, and he shows us what it's like. So we finished up reading there in 12. We'll pick it back up in 14. And Jesus returned in power, right? He's been in the wilderness 40 days being tempted um, <clears throat> by, uh, by the enemy. Jesus returned in power this, in the, of the Spirit to Galilee. So mountaintop, right? Mountaintop kind of moment. And a report about him went through all the surrounding county. What's that? That's ambition. The report of him went all about through the, through the surrounding country. Right? Everybody all of a sudden, that's ambition. Everybody knows. Like the ministry, the name is, is growing. Here it comes, right by a right, mountaintop. Everything went great. You think, whoo, we're good. Nope. Here, here it comes again. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What's that? That's approval, right? Everybody's like, oh, he's incredible. This Jesus, we haven't, we haven't heard a teacher like him. Everybody's giving him all the attaboys, all the pats on the back, right? What you realize, mountaintop moment, no, there's, no, <laughs> there's no special like bubble, right? Because things are going great. Here it comes. Just a temptation comes around the barn again. Um, so, um, what we would say, I think, is that victory, right, in the desert, and we're going to see how Jesus deals with these temptations in the real world. Verse, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, hometown, right, going back to his hometown, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I want you to remember this phrase right here. And to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So Jesus is in his hometown, right? Sabbath day, 
Everybody, no work, everybody rest, part of the Jewish, um, Jewish foundations, teaching, calendar. Jesus goes to the synagogue just like everybody else goes to the synagogue. I'll show you the picture of the synagogue in Nazareth, probably the same one, unearthed in archaeology, probably the same one that Jesus taught in. He's standing there. Um, nobody knows really a lot about his public ministry. Like I said, his, his name's kind of starting to climb. He comes in. What would have happened every, every week in the Sabbath? The Kazan, the local Sabbath leader, would have given the, uh, the scriptures to someone to read. They give the scriptures to Jesus. Jesus goes and reads Isaiah 61. And he says, Isaiah 61, just rolls it right out there that God is going to send the Messiah to proclaim freedom to the captives. He's going to send the Messiah to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And after the reader, um, after he was done reading in the synagogue, if he chose to, if he proclaimed himself to be a teacher, he would go and he would sit down and he would begin to teach from the bench, right? So Jesus reads. He would have given the scriptures back. That's what we read. Gave the scriptures back. He went and he sat down and he looks at everybody and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I don't know how many, Nazareth was a small town, right? Everybody knew everybody. So Jesus reads about the Messiah, and then he sits down, and he looks at all the people who've seen him ever since he was really, really little, and he says, it's me. I'm your guy. Can you imagine everybody? Everybody's like, Joe's kid's the Messiah? He built my kitchen table. Wow, Mary's boy. I never, I never didn't see it coming. And all were amazed at his gracious words. They're like, Joe's kid. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going he's gonna to take off the, the, the oppression of our poverty. It's Joe's kid. This is, it, the Messiah's from our town, right? He's going to be our guy. Amazing moment. And let me read to you. Five, count them, five verses later, Jesus still in the synagogue, same spot, five verses later, here's what it says in verse 28, when they, they be in the crowd, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill, I'll show you the picture of the cliffs in, in Nazareth, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down a cliff. Five, I mean, five verses earlier. They're like, it's great, it's Joe's kid. And all of a sudden, now they want to kill him. The question is, what in the world could Jesus have said in those five <laughs> verses? I mean, hometown kid, right? He's killing it. He's doing a great job. I mean, whenever I go back and speak in my hometown, it doesn't matter. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how white my hair is. Now, I'm little Deany to some of those people, and they're like, oh, it's so good. I could say anything. And they're like, he's our hometown. Hometown kid, Jesus, killing it. They love it. And all of a sudden, instead of saying he's killing it, they're wanting to kill him, right? Five verses. What could he have said? Here's what he says, verse 24. This is what he said. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the, prophet, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman, who, 
who is the Syrians. So Jesus looks at the crowd. They're all excited. And he says, let me just tell you, this is going to be great. He said, I'm going to be a prophet. I'm, just, I'm, 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 the, I'm your guy. I'm going to be your guy just like Elijah was. I'm going to be your guy just like Elisha was. And they're like, yeah, Messiah, he should be like our prophets. Elijah, he should be like our prophets. And Elisha. And Jesus says, yep, just like them. Remember when there was that great famine, that great drought that went on three, on three years, six months? And God sent Elijah not to the people of Israel. He didn't send him to help them. He sent him that, that poor widow up in Zarephath, that foreign country, to the Gentiles. Not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And he went up there and he, he healed her son. Jesus says, yeah, that's me. Remember when Elisha, remember when, when the great prophet Elisha? And there were people who were sick, people who had diseases, people who had leprosy. And God sent him up to Naaman, the Syrian, the rich Syrian, oppressive king from Syria, not to a Hebrew, but to a Gentile up there. Remember when he said, Jesus says, yeah, that's me. And they're like, wait a minute. We got problems in, in Israel. You're telling us that you're the Messiah and you're going to go solve somebody else's problems instead of solving our problems? You're no Messiah. Or at least you're not the kind of Messiah that we want. And so they decide right there, we're done with you. You're not the Messiah. And to prove it, to prove it, we're going to take you out of this city right now. Listen, Jesus looks at the people and he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 61, right? He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm coming. I'm going to preach good news to the poor. Did he do that? Yes. Kind of. <laughs> Did poverty still exist after Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected and went back to heaven? Did poverty still exist? Yes. Could he have solved poverty? He could. So what does that mean? That means the reference is not to physical poverty. It's to spiritual poverty. Right? It, Jesus says, look, I've, I've come not just to preach good news to the poor, but to preach um, release to the captives, right? Did Jesus free the captives? Yes, kind of. <laughs> I mean, everybody except his cousin, John the Baptist, who actually died in prison. He's talking about a spiritual captivity, Right? that we all live in, that thing that I mentioned earlier, the fact that we're born into this world, separated from God, bent towards ourselves, turned on our own selfishness. Jesus says, I'm preaching good news to people who understand your spiritual poverty, right? Like what we said last week, that we, that we are hopeless without Christ and we are unstoppable with Christ. We are hopeless without him because then we would have to make amends for our own sin, which we cannot do because we are not perfect. So Jesus comes, leaves heaven, comes to earth, dies in our place, becomes a sacrifice for us, and in that he answers how spiritually poor we are. Now the problem for the Hebrews is that they didn't believe in their own spiritual poverty, right? We're Hebrews, we're God's chosen people. If I could say it to you this way, I'd say it, um, they kind of, you know, they didn't believe they were spiritually poor, they kind of thought they were spiritually middle class. Blue collar, we work really hard. That's why God loves us. That's why he chose us. That's why we're more important than everybody else is. That's why God is going to send the Messiah to us, 
not to everyone else, but he's sending the Messiah to us because he loves us more because we are better people. And Jesus comes, tosses that up in the air, and swing, and just swats that idea. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand your spiritual poverty, that you are hopeless without me. So me and you, do you understand, do you believe in your spiritual poverty? Because he's not going to be Messiah to you unless you get that first part. Unless you understand that you have no hope outside of the goodness of Christ, leaving heaven, come to earth, offering himself to die, that you are hopeless without him. But the good news is that because he did all that, right, you are unstoppable. You are unstoppable with him. And the Hebrew people said, we don't want that. So the question you and I have to answer is, not only do you believe in your spiritual poverty, but do you want do you want that kind of a savior? And if you don't, okay. He will let you walk away. He will let you go, seek, find, experience life on your own terms. He'll let you go, try and find um, try and find your own salvation. He'll let you work out your own self-salvation strategies. But I think that time and history have proven and proven very, very well that number one, he will not stop pursuing you. And number two, you will eventually find the end. You will eventually find the end of yourself, of your own abilities. You will eventually find that the enemy has a wonderful plan for your life. And you'll think it's wonderful <laughs> until it ends up terrible. But you don't have to live that plan out, right? Because Jesus says, I have come, I have come to proclaim. Remember what I told you, remember earlier? The favorable year of the Lord. Now, that's a very specific reference in Hebrew world, in Hebrew dumb. The favorable year of the Lord was very, very, very specific. So I mentioned to you every, every, uh, every week, Hebrew world, you had a Sabbath day, right? Sabbath day, everybody rests, go to the synagogue, hear teaching, no work is done that day. The purpose of the Sabbath was rest, and rest in a sense, not just not doing work, but in reflection, right, on your relationship with God, his goodness to your life. It was a day of repentance, being drawn back to him, focused on him. That was every seventh day. But every seventh year on their calendar was a Sabbath year. And every seventh year, the ground... Now, they didn't farm. The ground lied fallow. It was a year of rest. When they say Hebrew word Sabbath, that's what the word means. It means to rest. So you've got rest every seven days. Then you've got rest for the land in a more broad sense every seven years. But every seventh seven, every 49 years, there was another year of rest, and it was called the Jubilee year. And it was unique among all the other. So you've got Sabbath every week, 
Sabbath every seven years, but the Sabbath to end all Sabbaths was every 49 years was what they referred to as the year of our Lord's favor. And you know what happens in the Jubilee year? The slate gets wiped clean for everybody, right? So if, um, let's say you got yourself into debt, and your debt is so significant that you can't pay it off, so you end up um, indenturing yourself into servitude or slavery to somebody else that you owed all this, all this money to. You had to work and work and work and work. But when you got to the Jubilee year, all the debts are forgiven. And because all the debts are forgiven, what? All of the captives are free, right? So the Jubilee year, it was a huge deal on their calendar in the beginning of Israel's history until they got to the exile. And in the exile, after that, they kind of stopped practicing this idea of the Jubilee. But if you're tracking with me, you know, Hebrew genealogy goes back thousands and thousands of years. So you can actually go back and nail it on a calendar. And had they continued to practice the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee in uh, post what we would consider um, BC in the AD years, year of Jubilee would have hit right about AD 28 or AD 29, which is right about the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So he's sitting down, he's in the synagogue, he looks out at the people, he says, Messiah's come, I'm your guy, and what I'm telling you is, right now is the Jubilee. And everybody's like, Jubilee? Yeah, I think they used to do that years and years ago, but they didn't get it. It wasn't about their physical situation. It was about their spiritual situation. And Jesus was saying to them is, listen, I'm the Sabbath to end all Sabbaths. That when it comes to reality, you come to me and you can rest. And I don't know about you. <laughs> that sounds really good to me. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 says, Strive ye therefore to enter that rest, that Sabbath. Cease from your working, cease from your strivings, and enter the rest that God offers. He is our jubilee So what? So do whatever you got to do. Do whatever you've got to do to love Jesus so much that there are moments in your life where the focus of your heart is that eternity with him is so much better than anything that we could ever have, purchase, love, or endure on this planet and strive to enter that rest. It is the only thing that is going to sustain you and me. If we don't have that, we're going to live our lives and we're going to fight temptation and we're going to fall and we're going to wear this, this label all the time. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be strong enough. I'll never be whatever it is enough to be the kind of Christian, to be the kind of person. I'm a failure. You're not a failure. You're walking in the favor of God. Amen. Why am I yelling? What is God? <laughs> Listen, you're not a victim of your appetites, right? 
You're not just going to punch and punch. You're not a victim of your appetites. You can live in victory over those things because you love something more than those things. Are there challenges? Yes. Difficult days? Absolutely. And, and the favor of God is sufficient for the day, right? You don't have to live in greed. You don't have to succumb to greed in your life and live for success after success after success. God has made you eternally rich, eternally wealthy. This is not it. This is, matter of fact, this is a pretty crummy version of it. If this is all we've got, we've got something more that we have found, that we will find, that we will see in the person um, of Christ. And listen, I don't have to live for your stinking approval because I have the approval of the almighty God purchased for me on the cross, right? So I don't care, right? I don't have to care what you think. Now, do we wanna practice the one another's in scripture? Absolutely. Do we wanna live out the fruit of the spirit? Absolutely. And I love you, and when you love me, I love it more. I'm gonna, I'll just admit it, right? It's true. But I don't have to, ultimately, I don't have to live for your approval because I've got the favor of God in my life. I'm sitting out there raking grass. And there's this little line that comes up in this song. Because what I've learned about your favor and your mercy and your grace is that they go on forever. You're sufficient for today. See, I can live through today. God is sufficient for your day today because he's got forever covered. And if he's got forever covered, guess what? He's got today covered. Are there gonna be challenges? Yes. Paul calls them momentary light afflictions. There will come a day when you and I will be in heaven, favor of God, worshiping eternally. And you know what? I don't even know. I don't even know that we're gonna remember the biggest challenges. So, what I've learned about your favor, your mercy, and your grace is that they go on and on and on forever. And you are sufficient for today. If you are a Christ follower, you are living in the eternal favor not the temporal favor. And I want to be real clear. I'm not saying God's going to give you a lot of money and make you successful at every turn and do everything you want at the drop of a hat. It's not how it works. You have the eternal favor of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you are Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, the one who was promised and the one who has come, God, will you please shower us with your presence and your love. What we sang earlier, God, is so true that we need a fresh wind. We need this anointing, the power, God, of your presence. And God, we welcome it. We welcome, pour it, bring it, God, because we, we need it more, God, even more so than we know. God, we're not we're not here to focus on the, uh, on the enemy. We're not here to focus, God, on our failures. We wear the label of favor. Help us to live in it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.